comment that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 19 through 20. Now that comment, depending on which Bible you have, may be right in the column where the Holy Scripture text is. There may be a footnote after verse 8 or just at the beginning of verse 9 with an indication that there's a note either at the top of the page or at the bottom of the page that we should read. Or your Bible may have it somewhere else. But last week I mentioned this, that if your Bible does not have an editorial comment like that, I would be the first to question the authenticity of your Bible as a reputable translation. And uh, as a conservative evangelical Christian, I would encourage you to consider buying another translation. Now, I want us to understand the gravity of what's in these verses 9 through 20. And as much as I appreciate multiple people sharing with me the fact that your Bible does not have that editorial comment, it has no effect on what I said last week. I would encourage you to purchase a different translation. And here's why. So let me be as kind and as honest and as loving and as gracious as I can possibly be because I want you to understand that if your Bible does not have that editorial comment, then I want you, in fact, it's more than I just want you to understand. You need to understand that there are things in your Bible in verses 9 through 20 that are in direct opposition to what we believe here at Crosspoint Church. That's how important it is to understand that editorial comment. Now let me give you two examples and then we're going to move on. Verse 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's not true. It's not true, and it's not what we believe here at Crosspoint. We believe that salvation occurs when we put our faith in Jesus, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus alone. We do not believe that baptism saves you. In fact, the example, when this was brought up in Sunday school, I came up with this number. There are 100 million people who will burn in hell, who have been baptized. Baptism is not salvation. And on the other side of that coin, there are 100 million people, and don't ask me where I get that number, I have no idea. There are 100 million people who will be in heaven who never were baptized. Do I think people should be baptized? Yes. I think all Christians should be baptized after they become Christians. But it has no effect on our salvation. And verse 16 leads me to believe that baptism that's hooked in there is part of salvation, and it's not. The other thing I want us to look at is verse 18. It says, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. That's not true. Don't even go there. That's not true, and that is not at all what we believe here at Cross Point Church. You want to play with rattlesnakes and other poisonous snakes. You want to drink poison. May God be with you. That's all I can say. Now here's where, here's where, here's where this becomes a uh, here's where this can become a challenge for all of us, especially if this Bible that does not have that editorial comment especially if that Bible was given to us by someone near and dear to our heart. And I, I shared in Sunday school that 
30, and I don't even, there are some pastors who would tell you the date they were ordained. All that I can remember was 30 years ago. I keep saying 30 years ago. It's like we, you know what else it's like? It's like we say, Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. We've been saying 2,000 years ago for as long as I've been alive. Well, on my ordination 30 years ago, we had a family member. He, he was a, a cousin, and his wife gave me a Bible in honor of my ordination. It was wonderful, right? But it did not have that editorial comment in there. Now, here's what I want to do, and, and trust me on this. I'm fine with you using any translation you want. I don't want you to leave here and say, well, Steve says we have to start using this translation, because that's not what I'm saying. And if you don't believe that's not what I'm saying, you can go back and watch the video again. I am not saying that. You're welcome at Crosspoint to bring any translation. We are not going to start stopping people at the door and having you show us what Bible translation you're walking in with. That, no, that's up to you. But I want you to just fast forward 10 or 20 or 30 years. I think if, you, if in your Bible it does not have that editorial comment, I think you, you owe it to your family, to your grandkids and your kids, your sons and daughters and grandsons and daughters. You owe them this as a minimum. You should take a red pen and circle verses 9 through 20, and you should make a comment in there in your Bible. This should be written in red so that the people who come across your Bible long after you're gone will understand that you understood these verses do not represent evangelical Christianity. There are no manuscripts anywhere without comments by scribes that say such and such, they say things like, these verses were not written by Mark, they are counterfeit, and were added by somebody years later. Because here's what I, I get nervous. I don't get nervous about dying. I know I'm going to heaven. I know my kids are going to heaven. And I hope that my grandkids will eventually come to that place where they put their faith in Jesus. But sooner or later, somebody's going to find my Bibles. And if I happen to have one of those Bibles that doesn't have that comment in, I mean, I want you to take this serious. Do you want your grandkids to find your Bible that doesn't have that editorial comment in there and say, really? I didn't know Grandpa believed this. I don't want my grand. This is more than just whether or not you want to put marks in your Bible. This is way more important than that. And here's where I wish I could go back and, and rewrite the script for the last 30 years. Because when my cousin and his wife gave me that Bible, and a year or two after that, I discovered that that Bible did not have that, that editorial comment in there. You know what I did? I made a huge mistake. I, I cut my name out of the front, the page, and then I gave the Bible to goodwill. Oh, I still regret that. Because now there's somebody out there that has that Bible. And they're reading those verses, and they believe that those verses are part of evangelical Christianity. So I just, I'm not going to revisit that. You're welcome to bring any Bible you want. I just think we need to understand the seriousness of what's being taught in those verses 9 through 20. And somehow we need to pass on to future generations, if we're going to hang on to those Bibles, 
that we do not believe verses 9 through 20 are part of evangelical Christianity. So with that, let's talk about, let's spend the rest of our 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 minutes talking about the unique things that we find in, in uh, Mark's gospel. Now, there are four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all similar to each other, yet each one remains different than the other three. So get out your pens and pencils. Matthew was written to Jewish people. Mark was written to the Romans. Luke was written to Gentiles. And John, well, John was written to everyone. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. I know what you're thinking. You're smart people. You're going to always remember this. No, you're not going to remember this. This is why I believe God gave us those white spaces in our Bible so that directly above Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I could write, and if you want to check my Bible, it's in there. Right above Matthew 1, 1, I wrote, Matthew was written to Jewish people. And then I found Mark 1, 1, and above Mark 1, 1, I wrote, Mark was written to the Romans. And then above Matthew, Mark, above Luke, 1, 1. You always wonder why these editors put that white space above chapter, so we could take notes in there. At least that's my interpretation. And so above Luke 1.1, I wrote in my Bible, Luke was written to the Gentiles. And I know some of us do a great job of bringing notebooks along, and, and, but what do you, you can't always, you're not always going to have that notebook along. And then above John, it says, John was written to everyone. Now, I know we're in Mark. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, 1. I appreciate that I can still hear the turning of pages. And someday, when the next generation... gets another generation older, the pastors will never be able to hear the turning of pages because everybody will have electronic Bibles. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 begins this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and on and on and on and on and on for the next 17 verses. Well, one of Matthew's purposes in writing his gospel was to show the Jewish world that Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. So Matthew uses 17 verses to show that Jesus is a descendant in the direct line from Abraham. Get out of Matthew. Go to Mark. Mark, because it was written to the Romans and not to Jewish people, because his gospel story is the story begins with Jesus being baptized at 30-some years old. It would serve no purpose for Mark, none, to list the ancestral heritage from Abraham to Jesus because the Romans don't know anything about waiting for the Messiah. It's a whole different culture. Most evangelical scholars believe that it was the Apostle Peter, and I would guess most of us, probably guessed that Peter is perhaps the disciple who was the closest to Jesus. Most evangelical scholars believe that it was Peter who passed on some of this information to Mark concerning some of the things Jesus said and did. Now history tells us, and you can get this not from the Bible, but you can get this from Google, that Peter died in 64 AD in Rome. Mark's gospel was written 
to the Romans. We have every reason to believe that Mark was with Peter in Rome when he died. And it was written soon after Peter died. So that's Matthew, Mark. Now let's go to Luke. Luke, being a Gentile. By the way, he's the only Gentile author in the entire New Testament. Now let me give you another by the way. Not only is Luke the only Gentile author in the New Testament. Well, let me, let me ask you to do something. I want you to take a little survey this week among your family and friends. Just casually ask them who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And almost everybody that has any connection with Christianity will say the Apostle Paul. No, he didn't. No. Yes, it's true, he wrote 13 books. But he didn't write the majority of the New Testament. The second guess, if you say no to Paul, they'll say, well, then it must have been the Apostle John because he wrote five books. He wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. No, he didn't write the majority of the New Testament. Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And by volume, Luke wrote more words, more sentences, more paragraphs than any other New Testament author. Now, the amazing thing to me is Jesus comes from Jewish descendants, and Luke, not only is he the only Gentile author in the New Testament, he wrote the majority of the New Testament that we hold in our hands. John was written to everyone. Perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible is what? John 3.16, for God so loved the whole world. Matthew was written to Jewish people, Mark was written to the Romans, Luke was written to Gentiles, John was written to everyone. Now here's some, some of the other things we know about Mark's gospel. It's the oldest of all the gospels. Yes, I know, it's second. Matthew's the first book, I know that. But Mark was written before Matthew. The second thing we know is, G, is that Mark, and we've talked about this over the weeks, Mark seems to focus on what Jesus did rather than what he said. We've learned that the most popular word in Mark is the word immediately. In the Greek New Testament, the word for immediately shows up 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. We know that Mark, Matthew has 23 parables. Mark has 10. Luke has 24. John has zero. Did you ever know that? John has zero parables. Sometimes we think all these Gospels are the same. They're not even close to the same. Matthew records 22 miracles, Mark has 20 miracles, Luke has 21, and John has 8. The key verse for Mark is Mark 10, 45, which says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now let's take a, for the rest of our time, I want us to review this, these four themes that show up from chapter 1 to chapter 16, and now I'm going to share something else. If you were to look at my Bible, and you can just trust me on this, if you would open to Mark chapter 1, I have these four themes written above Mark chapter 1, verse 1. How else am I going to remember this? And I'm going to give us examples for these four themes, and these examples are not all the examples that we could come up with, and you're welcome to come up with more the next time you read through Mark, but we're going to look at four themes. Number one, and this is things that we've already talked about. Jesus is not just a good man, but Jesus is the son of the living God. It's from the very beginning, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, 
with you I am well pleased. Mark 9, 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Wow. I have no idea what that would have been like standing on the plain there, up on the mountain in chapter 9. And to hear that voice, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus is not just a good man. Ask people on the street, who is Jesus? Half the people in the world will now say, well, he's a good man. He's not just a good man. He's the son of the living God. Number two, Jesus, because he is the son of God, he has the power to perform miracles. Let's look at two or three or four of these. And there's many more than this that occur in here. Jesus healed a man of leprosy. Mark 1, 40 to 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Listen, there is no medicine. There's no cure for leprosy in the first century. There is no cure. You can go to all the doctors. You can go to a different doctor every day if you could find one. There's no cure for leprosy. If you get leprosy, you're banned from the city. You have to go live out in colonies and caves and get away from people. We don't want what you've got. There is no cure. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus is the Son of God, and because he's the Son of God, he has the power to perform miracles. Number two, Jesus healed a paralyzed man. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately. There's no going to Avira for therapy or Sanford. There's no going to a rehab center. There's no getting surgery so that your paralysis can be somehow helped with surgery. There's none of that. Take up your bed and walk, and immediately, this guy is healed. Look at the third example. Mark 5, verse 25. Jesus heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Just think of that, verse 26. She spent all she had, and at the end of spending all that she had, she's worse off than she was before she went. 
who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, this poor woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And immediately, she's healed. You don't need to go to the doctor. There's no more surgery. You won't have to do more blood transfusions, whatever we do. Now the things that we talk about in 2019, none of that. Jesus heals her immediately. How about this last one we're going to look at? Mark 6, 45 to 51. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Walking on the water. Walking on the water. How many have ever been in a boat? How many have ever been in a boat when it's kind of rough and stormy? How many have ever been in a boat when it's rough and stormy and you realize that all the life jackets are back on shore? And Jesus comes, and he's, he's walking on the water. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, you better check your pulse. He's walking on the water. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Walking on the water, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the, on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw and were terrified. Well, of course, that isn't the kind of thing you see. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got, verse 51 says, He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astonished. You remember how at one point the disciples looked at each other and they said, who is this guy? I mean, they have been with him. He healed the man with leprosy. He healed the paralytic. He heals the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And now, if you want more, now he's walking on water. Jesus, because he is the Son of God, he's not just a good man. He's the Son of God, and he has the power to perform miracles. The third theme that runs from chapter 1 to 16 is this. Jesus did not do ministry alone. He taught and trained and encouraged his disciples to do ministry as well. From the beginning of his ministry, he invited what we call disciples to come and do ministry with him. Mark, go back to chapter 1. Verse 16 says, passing along, alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I remember when we were back in Mark chapter, what is, is this, four? This is still one. Remember, five of the original 12 disciples all came from that same little town of Capernaum, up there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. We've got Andrew and Peter and James and John, and then Jesus goes into town and he sees Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. He's also in Capernaum. So five of the original 12, is that still 10? <laughs> five of the original 12 are all from this little town up there. They're not from Jerusalem, they're from Capernaum. He's inviting these young guys to come and do ministry with him. Then turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus did not do ministry alone. He recruited, he encouraged, he trained others to do ministry with him because he knew there was coming a time when he was going to leave and he's going back to heaven. And if the ministry of advancing the gospel is going to continue, he has to have people trained who will continue to advance the gospel. Number four, and this is our last one, Jesus loved to teach in parables. Down-to-earth stories with heavenly meanings. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in and on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Chapter 4, verse 30, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it's grown, sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The fourth point, Jesus loved to teach in parables. Now let me close with this. Since Jesus is the Son of God, and He is, and He has the power to perform miracles, let me ask you a question. I'm not asking this of the person sitting next to you. I'm asking this of you. Since Jesus is the Son of God, and He does have the power to perform miracles, what are you asking Jesus to do in your life right now? What are you asking him? Here he is. He has the power to perform miracles. And my question for you this morning is, what are you asking Jesus to do for you in your life? Or do you think this is just somehow for somebody else? This is for you. This is for me. The second thing, I want you to keep thinking of that other one. Here's the second thing I want you to think about. Of the ten parables in the Gospel of Mark, and you remember every week when we ended whatever chapter we were on, I gave you an assignment to go read the next chapter before you come to church next week. So I'm assuming that you all read all 16 chapters. Now, of the ten parables in the Gospel of Mark, 
which one do you enjoy most retelling? Or let me ask you this, of the ten parables in the Gospel of Mark, which one do you spend the most time thinking about? There's a parable, I won't tell you which one because I don't want to distract you with my life. But there's a parable in Mark that I keep thinking about and I've been thinking about it for 30 or 35 years. I just, you know, parables are those Those down-to-earth stories with heavenly meanings. So there's one of those ten, and I'm not going to tell you which one I... But I'm just wondering, of those ten, just in Mark, which one really picks at your brain or picks at your soul that you just enjoy reading it over and over again and perhaps retelling it over and over again? And here's the third question. Since Jesus modeled for us the importance of doing ministry together with others... Who are you doing ministry with right now? And what are you doing? May God take these things that we've talked about for 17 weeks in a row. And may he continue to do his work in our life as we do our best to share these things with the people in the world around us. Now your assignment for next week, if you choose to accept it, is to read Jonah chapter 1. We're going to do the same thing with the book of Jonah. Go chapter by chapter and then we'll do a review that we did with the Gospel of Mark. So starting next Sunday, Jonah chapter 1. Let's close in prayer and while I'm praying, the ushers are going to come and then we're going to take this morning's offering. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, well, we have, we have so many things to be grateful and thankful for. We're thankful that there really was a guy, and as best we understand it, he was just a young guy, and his name was Mark. And he was a friend with the Apostle Peter. And God, you worked in his life to record all these events that we find in these 16 chapters. And then, God, it goes way beyond that. Because of your sovereignty and your omniscience and your omnipotence, you have preserved for us a copy of Mark's gospel that we hold in our hands. And God, we believe this is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And we ask that each of us would have the desire to take these things and apply them to our life and then pass them on to other people. God, we really believe that Jesus was not just a good person. He was the Son of God. And we really believe that because he was the Son of God, he had the power to perform miracles. God, I ask that we would trust him to perform those miracles in our life. And God, when we see the example of Jesus, how he did ministry with other people, I, I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to reach out and be involved in helping people and to do it not just alone, but to do it with other people. And Lord, we thank you for these ten parables. And God, it seems like the more, we, the more time we spend reading these, the more interesting they become. 
Help us to never get to the point where we say, yes, we've read that and we don't need it anymore. Help us to always be hungry for more. And now, Lord, this morning, as we take the offering, we thank you for each gift and for each giver. We ask that you would help the leaders here at Crosspoint to continue to be good stewards of all that's entrusted into their care. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.